and another uh, fabulous uh, virtual class. This is the one we were, we've been calling the class in the bunker, but we're trying to unbunkerize uh, and, and get out and put on our masks and live life and move forward. So uh, it's kind of fun as you start hearing people going uh, back to church a little bit. I don't know how long it's going to be, probably a long time before we're back uh, in church all the time. And uh, Again, as we've talked about all along, what we're going to do with this class, we're going to keep on rolling till we're, till we're uh, back in church. And uh, this makes a pretty fabulous uh, uh, Sunday uh, for me as I get ready for it, and then I'll be able to, to share this uh, with you. As always, as you're, as you're uh, watching, uh, please let us know where you're coming from. kind of gives us that flavor of all the people that uh, we're being able to, to capture. Uh, as we uh, roll forward and be able to uh, uh, still kind of maintain our sense of a church community, albeit a much larger one with what we're doing uh, at the moment. Now, as we get started today, uh, and, and uh, I think my clicker actually works today, <laughs> that is awesome. Um, I wanted to, uh, I was reminded a little bit more this week about sometimes how we study the scriptures. There's often, especially when it comes to the Book of Mormon, that we just roll on through and there's some spiritual strength when, of just reading the Book of Mormon cover to cover in a short period of time to get a kind of spiritual lift and it gives us some direction and we pick up things along the way. There, at the same time, there is a time when we slow way down and we take a look at, at the scriptures and we dig it up and we dig through it to find the real nuggets that are there for us as we get started. Okay, Now, one of those things uh, I ran across uh, today and it was just a, a reminder to me again how important it is that we take time to dig. Uh, some recent statistics came out, uh, those that analyzed these kind of things, who said that they had analyzed the, the Book of Mormon and found that pretty consistently that the Book of Mormon, for instance, reads at an eighth grade level, which is pretty fine for me. Uh, it reads at an eighth grade level. And, yet, and, and by the way, the book Saints was written about an eighth or ninth grade level because for easier reading, that's what we do. The beautiful thing, though, about the Book of Mormon and the New Testament as well is that when you dig, you start to find that this is not at an eighth grade level. There's a graduate course that sits down underneath there that only when we see it in context do these deeper truths jump out at us and we can miss it if we're reading and enjoying it at that eighth grade level. This is one of those. Now, let's go back to last week. Last week, for those that were, uh, that, that were with us last week, we talked about uh, Lehi's dream in 1 Nephi 8 and how he, how he viewed that. And for most of us, as we've talked about, we read the, the tree of life dream or vision, however you want to put it, and it's easy to put ourselves in there or to put most of life in there, people going down the, 
the the iron rod and down the path and do they fall into the gulf and the midst of darkness and what voices are they listening to and all of that kind of stuff okay and that works for us at that level for lehi though we talked about last week that this was an intensely personal experience for him it was a personal dream and remember that he starts the whole thing uh, by saying i have dreamed a dream and because of it, I fear for Laman and Lemuel. That for him, it was kind of a discouraging dream. I fear for Laman and Lemuel. Then he, get, he tells, Nephi uh, gives us uh, how Lehi described it. And then just before Nephi leaves off with his words, Lehi's last words describing that dream was, and Laman and Lemuel never partook of the fruit. And because of that, remember that his take on that whole experience was, I am fearful that Laman and Lemuel, and by, and by so doing, their, their descendants, I'm fearful that Laman and Lemuel will be cast out forever and lost. Now, that, that's a hard one as a parent. To say, I have dreamed this dream, and what would you take from it? Well, I'm going to lose Laman and Lemuel. I'm going to lose part of my sons. And that actually carries over. The last words we're hearing from Lehi in Second Nephi, just before he dies, he says, I'm happy for Nephi, I'm happy for Sam, I'm happy for Joe. But Laman and Lemuel, I'm fearful for you. Please keep the commandments, because I'm afraid that you won't and that you're going to be cast off forever. And with that, he dies, with that fear that they would be cast off. And, and what we talked about last time was our, our additional knowledge and revelation that's come to us from places like Section 76, the Three de Degrees of Glory, and temple work that was being done in Nauvoo, and temple work that's done now that says... Some of those that we, don't, that we thought might be cast off forever are not. And in fact, the eye of the shepherd is upon them, to, your, to use Orson Whitney's words. The eye of the shepherd is upon them, and he will bring them home. Well, what I found, in, in, and it kind of jumped out at me this week, it was kind of fun, as I was getting ready for this class, and I was reading uh, some verses, um, I came across this from Jacob. And, and here, here's what I took from it, that for, for Nephi and Jacob, particularly as, as they became prophets, they had to have the words of Lehi ringing in their ears. That for Lehi, Laman and Lemuel and their descendants, who, whom he believed he was looking at in, in Lehi's dream, the descendants of Laman and Lemuel, many and, or most would be lost. And as Nephi and Jacob have their own visions, especially Nephi, of the future, and they see the destruction of the Nephites, they had to have the same question as Lehi did, which was, what about our kids? What about generations after us? Will they be, first of all, lost? And then are they cast off forever? Now, if I'm Nephi, if I'm Jacob, I'm asking questions. You know, when we look at revelations that come to prophets, Book of Mormon, 
Doctrine and Covenants, uh, current day. Revelations come to prophets because there was a problem and they asked a question and they got clarification. They got inspiration and guidance about what to do. There's a problem. They ask a question. They get an answer. They record it. Imagine Nephi and Jacob going to the Lord and saying, what about our kids? What about our Nephite ancestors or uh, descendants as we're watching them destroy themselves? Will they be cast off forever? What a horrifying thought. Imagine if any of you had a dream of, right, okay, here's my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids and great-great-great-grandkids, and I have a dream, and they all drowned in a gulf, or they're lost in a mist of darkness, and they're forever lost to me. Am I going to get to heaven and it'll be a sad heaven because I'll be there without them? I could see Nephi and Jacob having that particular thought. And as it turns out, with Jacob, I believe that we're given a little bit of a hint that Jacob asked the question and Jacob got a very beautiful answer that's hidden just before you roll into Second Nephi, so it's right on the fringes of that wasteland of Isaiah in Second Nephi. Here's this little bit of an answer that, uh, that Jacob is going to give us that he may have been given knowledge uh, you don't see a lot more of it in the Book of Mormon, but it's there, and at least Jacob appears to have had some knowledge. Here's, so here's Jacob's revelation, and it's actually in Second Nephi 10. He says, For behold, the promises, read covenants, the promises which we have obtained are promises unto us according to the flesh. Things will happen to us in the flesh. Therefore, as it has been shown unto me that many of our children shall perish in the flesh. So like Nephi, he has this horrible vision of what's going to happen to his children in the flesh. They're going to be destroyed. Our children shall perish in the flesh because of unbelief. So he's not just talking about perishing like dying. He's talking about perishing like we're going to lose them spiritually because they're going to be lost because of unbelief. And that's exactly Lehi's fear in First Nephi 8. My children will be lost because of unbelief and cast off forever to a lake of fire and brimstone uh, from whence no man can return. That's, that was Lehi's fear. Jacob is saying, it's been shown unto me. Now watch what he says. It's been shown unto me. Many of them are going to perish because of unbelief. Nevertheless, God will be merciful unto many. And then he says, and our children shall be restored. That they may come to that which will give them the true knowledge of their Redeemer. They will perish in the flesh, but they won't be lost. And in fact, the word he uses, they will be restored to that which will give them the true knowledge of the Redeemer. 
He has a hope that Lehi did not have. Jacob has been given knowledge and understanding that wasn't yet available to Lehi. That those kids, even if they perished in the flesh because of unbelief, that the Lord had prepared a way to get them and to bring them home and to be restored. And that, that's kind of an important word, this idea of restored or restoration. Now, uh, when we look at that, uh, let's step back for just a second, uh, and then, I'm gonna, then I want to tell you Jacob's conclusion about what he felt like that meant. Now, when, when we look at uh, the, the, the original New Testament, as we know, was written in Greek, and that it stayed in Greek uh, for decades and for centuries, and then as more and more people were speaking English, there was a need ultimately to somehow move it from the Latin, which was its first one, the Vulgate, into English so that the people could read it. And there was, as we know, there was great pushback uh, from the church and from leaders against that happening. But as that started to happen, uh, one, uh, as, as John Wycliffe uh, in 1300s is, is going through Paul's magnificent uh, uh, written uh, talk to the Romans, to his epistle. You're, he's going to run across Romans 5.11 and talking about what happens to those that have been lost. And, and what we get uh, from John Wycliffe is he's going to say the rec he's going to call it uh, we're going to receive the reconciliation the term he's going to use is that we're going to somehow be reconciled that's that is Jacob's word of they're going to be restored he's going to talk about in terms of reconciliation and we're going to receive the reconciliation now about uh, a couple of centuries later, in the 1500s, uh, now we're going to get the, the wonderful translation from William Tyndale, who's going to be able to write in hiding the entire New Testament and parts of the Old Testament. And ultimately, we know he will, he will lose his life. Uh, he will be beheaded because he did it. Uh, but in, in hiding in Germany while he's writing... He's going to come across what Wycliffe is talking about in the reconciliation, and Tyndale re, uh, creates a word, and I, and we think he's kind of drawing on uh, another prophet, uh, Julian of Norwich, who had talked about the importance of being one with God, and and the importance of oneing, and and Tyndale creates a word as he translates reconciliation, and he's doing it from the Greek, and he's going to call it the at-one-ment. We have received the at-one-ment, the atonement. And the atonement, and this, is, and this is where the word comes from, is Tyndale, as he talks about that we're going to be at-one. And what he's looking at is the word reconciliation. Now, 
here is the here's the unfortunate part of this and we love the atonement and we love talking about the atonement however in presentism our in our day and and certainly in in centuries coming out of the reformation atonement took on a little bit different flavor especially when seen through the eyes of the church that was an act of atonement that there was something had atoned and and so uh, and that's even carried forward in today. If I were to ask most of, of you, when did Christ's atonement take place? You'd say, well, you know, I think that was on the cross, or I think that was uh, in in uh, the garden. Uh, that's when the atonement, or maybe it took actual place in the tomb as he's rising from the dead in other words we say let's give an let's give an actual date to the atonement and we can try and pinpoint it that was the date the atonement happened the unfortunate part about that is when we start to say to somebody who is struggling uh, well I, I realize that you've lost your spouse or I realize that these hardships are happening to you you need to draw on the power of the atonement and it's a little bit hard to be honest with you to say I'm not quite sure if we're going to be honest I'm not quite sure how our losing of our job due to a virus that we can't control and the counsel is, is that we're supposed to draw on the atonement. I'm not sure exactly how I draw peace and comfort from his death on the cross or the pain, the, what he went through in Gethsemane immediately translates in my mind to this will help me with my job search tomorrow. And we, and we try and do that. Well, he atoned for our pain. He covered our pain. And all of that is true. But because our presentism makes the atonement an event, that's a harder thing to kind of grasp what it is that the Savior in his love is doing for us. I believe, though, that that changes when we take a step back and maybe while we're looking at atonement, maybe we also consider the word reconciliation. Because now, with reconciliation, now you begin to see more of a process and not an event. You see something that is more ongoing on a regular basis. And you start to take a look at, at what happens through most of the, we'll talk about this a couple of times, most of what happens in the Old Testament is this process with Israel where they go back and forth from being reconciled to God and then through their behavior they will then be alienated from God. And then things will happen to them and they will be reconciled to God. And then they are alienated to God. And they kind of go back and forth between being reconciled and being alienated. And God is always at the other side saying, just come back. I know you've been alienated. I know you kind of wandered away. And he keeps pulling them back. Now, that's a little bit harder for us to understand. Um, unless, and I'm going to jump over here um, ahead and then come back.
So we recognize that in almost all, re all relationships, lo loving relationships, whether it's with God or with anybody else, we have this process where we reconcile and then we get alienated. We do something, something, somebody said something, we get offended, uh, or with God we have our, our uh, dumb things, our stupids, I call them, that we do, end up alienating us from God. Uh, we, now we, we become forward, uh, foreigners and then we get alienated and then we, and then we decide to reconcile. So, maybe the best way to understand that, in all honesty, uh, is for any of us that have been parents. Because there is not a parent in here that doesn't understand that moment when, you, and it's the thing that drives you crazy, when your kids are arguing and they're bickering. And what do you do? Well, you come rolling out and you say to them, uh, children, uh, because of your disputations, I'm going to alienate you one from another and cause you to be scattered until we can reach some kind of agreement and reconciliation in the future. Now, what you generally say is, I can't stand it anymore. You go to your room. You go to your room. Everybody scatter. I need peace and quiet before I do something rash. I've had it. <laughs> and then after some period of time some child's knocking on the door mom can I can I come back and what do you say you'll have to go apologize to your brother for hitting him just because he took your Legos and if you guys can come out and be nice you can come back out and play okay so what do they do they come back out and they reconcile they come back together and because of that experience they never bicker again actually they bicker 10 minutes after that and then they alienate themselves or maybe they're good for a while and then later on tonight then there's more arguing and disputations and you send them to their room again and then they're alienated and you go okay you guys can come out again when you're nice. Okay, we'll be nice. Okay, now you've reconciled. And, and we do that. And we love them the whole time. It's just that they're doing things that aren't really helpful and cause pain among each other. Okay? Well, that process of going through that is what we do when we sin, for instance. Our behavior is not compatible with being in the presence of God. And, we, and, and we, God doesn't have to punish us. We feel the sense of, we feel the distance. We feel the alienation. We, we're farther back. We can feel that. And then at some point, we're going to go take the sacrament, and we, we're, we strive to remember him. Because of that, he says, you'll have my spirit to be with you. And when we have his spirit to be with you, what does it do? We reconcile. We pull closer together. That's the purpose of the Spirit. That's what the Savior was trying to say when he's saying, Father, make them one in me as I am with thee. But that happens when they reconcile. Tell them to quit arguing about who gets to sit next to me at the dinner and who's going to be on the right hand and who's going to be on the left. 
kids, go to your room until you figure out we're all going to be one, and and we're and uh, we're done with the arguing. Now, as we go back then, so let's look at what the, as we're doing this process. Let's go back to see what um, Nephi or Jacob's conclusion was then, talking about these kids that would go through this constant battle and in some cases they would say we don't want to hear the gospel and so they're going to wander off and they're going to follow the great and spacious building and everything he says okay now wherefore my beloved brethren reconcile don't be alienated anymore reconcile yourselves to the will of God and not to the will of the devil and the flesh and remember that after ye are reconciled unto God that is only, it is only in and through the grace of God that you are saved. If we if we go back, that that well we won't do that. Um, that's that's what uh, Jacob was trying to say that those of his children of his flesh who were going to be lost, alienated would come to that which would bring them back to God. And that would be reconciliation. Now, every time I've used the word reconciliation, we're also saying atonement. So, so now if I ask, when did the, the atonement take place? When did the reconciliation to God take place? I would hope our answer would be, that reconciliation took place after the war in heaven. That reconciliation was taking place in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. That, that reconciliation took place all through history. That reconciliation took place when I was baptized. That reconciliation took place when I partook of the sacrament. That reconciliation will take place in the future. That reconciliation will take place before I can enter the celestial kingdom. In fact, in all of God's creation, there is not a time when the Savior's reconciliation and atonement isn't active. Because it is. Constantly. So when we're looking, when we're struggling with our own private pain and hurts, we're not talking about trying to necessarily look back to the, the suffering in the garden and the death on the cross. We're talking about the Savior's ongoing, everyday, enabling grace that he's trying to help us in our hard times. Why? To reconcile with him. If we are reconciled to him, we are more in a place where we can understand the things that are happening to us and feel the peace that will give us the strength to go find a job, to get through the death or divorce from spouse. That we have those moments that enable us uh, to quit, to quit bickering, and be able to be drawn close to one another. I never give a talk about forgiveness. Never. Especially in large gatherings like at BYU Education Week or something, where somebody doesn't come up after and they say, 
Brother Hinckley, I haven't seen my grandkids for three years. My daughter won't talk to me. I am alienated from her. I haven't seen my son for years. He got mad and he left and he won't return our calls. I haven't talked to my brother for a long time. We're still angry about how we divided mom's inheritance. And we get these places where in everyday life we're not reconciled. We are separated from one another. We are at a distance from, an, from one another. I will never go back to that ward because the bishop said this. I have alienated, I've separated myself from that man, from that Relief Society president, from the way they talk to my kids, to the way I got, the, the, the way I was treated. There are so many ways in which this world, especially as polarized as we are right now politically, it's so easy to become alienated and separated rather than reconciled, not just with the Savior, but with one another, where we're needing to draw close to each other at a very moment when we're separated out. Everything about the Savior is come home. Have your hearts knit together and, and come home. Now, in the, in the, in the time remaining, um, I want to kind of give you a couple of examples where I think sometimes in our life we experience personal uh, diasporas. And the diaspora was the dividing, the scattering of the Jews uh, all, all across the world. First of all, by the Assyrians, Babylonians, and they come back into uh, from the exile, and then the Romans then scatter them again. And to a certain extent, the the Jewish diaspora is still happening. They're still scattered, and slowly they're coming home until they make Aliyah, which is the returning home. But I want to I want to look first of all then at good slide you ought to look at it sometime <laughs> there's a couple of Old Testament stories that I want to hit uh, quickly um, in talking about this because one of the things I love about the Old Testament is they are so stinking human they are they go through things and it's just there and it says and and one of those uh, when we look at alienation and then and then trying to find sweet reconciliation with one another. One of those that's pointed to a lot is Jacob and Esau. You remember very quickly that that uh, when Jacob and Esau are born, that um, th that Esau is actually born first, and he should be the one that gets the birthright. And through a couple of things that happen, Esau is like the Lamanites. Esau is kind of robbed of his birthright uh, through his actions and through the things that happen. Uh, so what happens then, remember that that uh, Rebecca uh, at some point, his mom says, you know, Esau wants to kill you. She sends him off to family, so he's going to go off with her brother. Um, and and he goes off, uh, and, and while Jacob is away from home, in the wilderness, so to speak, he's going to end up uh, getting Rachel and Leah and, 
and two handmaidens and now suddenly he is a wealthy man because he has, well suddenly over a couple of decades, now he's got 11 uh, kids, 11, uh, he's got four wives, he's got flocks and herds and, he, and then the Lord says go home, be reconciled to Esau. And Jacob says, he wants to kill me. And the Lord in the Spirit says, go home. Be reconciled. Okay. Now, Jacob is going to go. On his way there, he sends gifts off to Esau. Uh, trying to start softening his heart. The servants come back and say, hey, yeah, we gave the flocks to Esau. By the way, he's coming to meet you. Oh, how is he? Well, he's bringing 400 men. Oh, that's not good. He's going to kill me anyway. He's got 400 men, and he's going to wipe out my families. So as they draw closer, Jacob's anxiety is getting greater. And that night before he knows that they're coming, he says that same night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford at Jabach. Okay? And then he took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything he had. So I'm so fearful Esau and his 400 men is going to kill me. I'm going to send my entire families and herds and everything to the other side of the river and I'm going to wait here all by myself. And what he has in mind is I need to get assurances from God that I'll be okay. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And there's wonderful symbolism here of the wrestling with the angel. Uh, and I won't take time to go into it, but in the wrestling, supposedly his, his hip bone is knocked out of joint uh, because the, there is a covenant going on. It's usually done by placing the hand on the inside of the thigh, which is a covenant against everything you're going to have in the future, your fertility. And that's really what he's saying. He obtained a covenant from God. In the, he's wrestling with God. And this is where he actually is going to change of his... He goes from Jacob to his covenant name of Israel. But again, story, great story for another time. Now, when the man saw he didn't prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip pocket and uh, hip socket I guess that would be different than the pocket uh, and his hip was out of joint he gets the covenant I won't let you go till you bless me what's your name Jacob no you're no longer going to be called Jacob but Israel because you have striven with, with God and with humans and have prevailed and you would think now even though Esau is just over the rise with his 400 men Jacob would say oh, I've been given a blessing from God, he, I've got a covenant with God, uh, I should be fine, right? Well, interesting thing about reconciliation with God is that so often the Old Testament prophets didn't believe that they got it. Almost like sometimes when we're trying to reconcile with people, we're not sure we'll get reconciliation. So we hold it off, or we worry, or we stress about it. Well, it's what Jacob did. Now, Jacob looked up, next day and he saw Esau coming and 400 men with him and now suddenly last night's wrestle last night's covenant out the window he's gone I'm gonna die 
So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. Hopefully somebody will get away when the 400 men start to kill us all and it will be bad and, and I'm going to be fearful. He put the maids with their children in front, Leah with her children, Rachel and Joseph last of all. He's trying to protect Joseph. Maybe he'll be the last one that they get to when they are killing off my family. Okay. And he himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times till he came near his brother. There's this kind of this symbolism of this humility. Please don't kill me and please don't kill my family. And then this moment. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And the reconciliation that he was so worried about occurs to a man who had actually married out of the covenant, who had sold his birthright for a mess of pottage, and was, and, and was still a good man and loved his brother. And Jacob missed it in his fear. And so powerful was this fear, by the way, that the untold backstory to this, we all, sometimes we hear about the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau. Jacob always doubted Esau after that. The rest of the story will be that Esau then says, follow me back home. And Jacob says, hey, we'll be along presently. And he never does join back together with Esau. The, according to the scriptures, we don't. And that's all we have at this moment is that he never saw Esau again until the death of their father Isaac. That he always, with the covenant, with the kiss, he still doubted. And that's why reconciliation has to be an ongoing process. Because like a one time, like, hey, I'm baptized, I'm reconciled, I'm good, says, no, you're baptized and you need the sacrament every week because you got to rec because reconciliation is a process over and over and over again. Because you're going to fear and you're going to doubt and you're going to repent and then you're going to do stupids and then the, God's going to call you back and then you'll be reconciled and you'll feel his spirit and then you'll go out and you'll do stupids some more and then you'll be reconciled again. And you'll send them to your room and they're going to be angry and then they'll be humble and then they'll want out. Then you'll tell them to apologize to one another and then they'll start playing Legos. Then they'll fight again. Then they'll be messed up again and then you're going to alienate them again and separate them and then you'll reconcile them later. <laughs> that is the process. It's called mortality and we need a process of reconciliation against our ongoing stupids. Okay. Uh, last, last story and then we will be done. Joseph in Egypt. And we remember how Joseph is sold into Egypt. Uh, and then he's there and he rises, he rises to the top. He helps, he helps Pharaoh. They gather grain. Uh, and then the brothers have to come to get grain from him. The story we know really well. Now remember that for so long Joseph remains hidden from his brothers even while he's helping them. Then he says, and then ultimately there comes that day of reconciliation. When Joseph could no longer control himself before those who stood before him, he cried and said, send everybody out. No one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept 
Again, we get this weeping again of the pain. He wept so loudly the Egyptians heard it. The house of Pharaoh heard it. And he said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? I've been separated from you guys. You are my, you're my family. I am Joseph is my father alive. But his brothers <laughs> could not answer him so dismayed they were at the present. At his presence, uh, we're toast. <laughs> we're the ones that sold him. Okay, he's loving us. He's weeping. He's worried about us, and we're not buying that we're still not going to be killed here. Joseph said to his brothers, "Come closer to me." Oh no! They came closer. He said, "I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt." Yeah, we we remember that. Now, do not be distressed nor angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. There was reason for this. So you would think the brothers would go, oh, now we can be safe. Now we're okay. After Jacob's death, realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for the wrong that we did to him? Okay, we reconcile, but we don't necessarily believe it. And we're still not sure. And they approached Joseph saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brother. So Jacob wasn't even sure. He who had his own reconciliation with Esau and doubted. Now therefore, please forgive the crime, the servants of God. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And he says, and, and as his brothers are kneeling like Jacob, like their father had done with Esau. They're going to kneel and say, we are here as your slaves. And Joseph said, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to harm me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he's doing today. So there is kind of the, the finale that I think goes sometimes with rec reconciliation. We go through this process of being separated away. And even when we are reconciled, when, when the atonement, the at-one-ing is taking place, we have a tendency to doubt because we know us. And we know that we make promises and then we don't necessarily keep them very well and then we apologize. And we, with all the great intention, we're going to go out and keep the commandments better and then we do more stupids and then we have to go back to God the next week and say, Okay, I tried and I blew it again and I need your help again. And he says, okay, come back. That entire process is the atonement. And it will happen all the way through to our entrance into the celestial kingdom. And it will happen for even those that we are alienated from until the day they enter the celestial kingdom and are at one with you as we are at one with God. Please see the reconciliation of God as an ongoing, everyday process, not an event. If we can do that, we have hope. If we can do that, we're able to find peace, even in the midst of painful acts on our part. I bear you my testimony that the Lord desires to reconcile us daily in spite of ourselves. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.